All right, well, this morning we conclude um, this brief sermon series, four parts in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, that I've called a matter of life and death. Um, in the previous three weeks, we've looked at different parts of the parable. Uh, we started with the people, that is the rich man and Lazarus, the characters, the main two characters that are presented in the story, and we sought to see what we could learn just from that particular aspect, just what their lives teach us. In the second sermon, we looked at the two places that these two people went, namely Hades, as uh, the text describes, and Abraham's bosom, or paradise, as is described um, for the experience of Lazarus. And then last week, we specifically dove into the details concerning those two places, namely what it was like for Lazarus to be comforted in Abraham's bosom, and then what it was like for the rich man to be in anguishing torment in Hades. So this morning, what we're going to do is conclude this series by looking at the plea, all right? We've looked at the people, the places, and the pleasure and the pain that they experienced in those places. Now we come really to the point of the entire parable. Now, Jesus often, when he's recounting a story or telling um, a parable, will sometimes give the point on the front end. He'll sometimes give the point in the middle of the parable, and then at other times he kind of slips it in at the very end. And that's what I believe to be the case in this parable. The point of this parable is in verse 31. As much as the rest of the parable teaches us about the afterlife, that's really not the main point of the parable. And as much as the parable teaches us about the lifestyle of the rich man and the lifestyle of Lazarus and how Lazarus suffered and the rich man enjoyed his good things in this life, that, those are secondary matters. But the primary matter is verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Now perhaps as you've been listening, I know we've had guests and regular attenders and, and kids who have been listening into this particular series. Um, and last week we, we, we ended our service just in a time of prayer over the seriousness and weightiness of eternal things. And I just want to encourage um, our kids or uh, even adults who are regularly attending but not sure where they are with the Lord. If the Lord has moved in your heart in any particular way, please speak to one of the pastors. You can speak to, a, if you know a, a brother or sister in the church that you're close with, you can talk to them. But don't, don't keep that between yourself and God. Talk to us about how the Lord's been working in your life through this particular series. You can talk to Pastor Keith, either one. You can talk to me, you can talk to Pastor Thad, or any, any member. We'd be we're around after the service. We'd love for you to come talk to us, and we'd be encouraged to see how the Lord might be working in your life in these days. So we come with that said to our final sermon and a final plea that is given by the rich man um, and what we can learn from this particular plea. So before we get into the four main lessons, I just want to survey verses 27 through 31. Okay, verses 27 through 31 are going to be the five verses we're going to be focusing on in this particular sermon. But I don't want to dive into the lessons before we understand what's going on. So let me give you five quick points from verses 27 through 31, and then we're going to get right in to the particular lessons we learn from this section. First of all, we've got an appeal in verse 27. We see it when he says, that is the rich man, that I beg you, Father Abraham, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may 
warned them. So the rich man appeals, please send Lazarus back from the dead to my five brothers who are living like I did and warn them about this place. Since I am hopelessly lost, says the rich man, and there's a great chasm fixed and I'm not going anywhere else, my damnation is final, my punishment will have no end, could this be done so that the rest of my family will not meet me here? That's his appeal. Now we see a strategy proposed in verse 28. Notice the strategy. I have five brothers, lest they come also to this place of torment. So the best plan from the rich man's perspective is to see a man raised from the dead. Surely that will convince them. If a man like Lazarus is brought back from the dead, if they see him, they are warned by him, then surely they won't come here. Now notice the response in verse 29, what Abraham says. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So Abraham's response is, they've got the Old Testament. They can read. They can understand. They have the Bible, at least the complete Old Testament at that point. The scriptures are sufficient, Abraham says, to warn them of everlasting punishment. The Old Testament is filled with it and to point them to the way of salvation. They don't need a dead man rise, raising from, being raised from the dead. But notice the protest in verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So how did the rich man respond? He raises a protest. He assumes resurrection guarantees repentance. That's his logic, right? If they see, they will respond. See, the problem from the rich man's perspective is they need to see something miraculous. They need to see something awesome. They need to see something that will make the news, right? They need to see something more than the scriptures. The Bible is boring. The Bible is just sitting there. The Bible is just a book. They need to see something more. They need a miracle. They need a sign. They need Lazarus to return from glory to authenticate what this book says. So you've got the appeal, the strategy, the response, and the protest. Before we get to the truth, isn't this what happened in the Christmas carol? I know we're out of season. Christmas in July, all right? When they see Lazarus, they will be struck with fear and awe, and they will be convinced, they'll be persuaded, they'll repent. That what happened to Scrooge, you know? He just needed to see, right? He needed to get outside of his particular perspective and, and see what, what his life could be and where it was headed. And they needed to be, he needed to be warned and he needed to have these, these ghosts of his past like, come back and warn him. And that's what broke the chains off. And that's what sent him into the streets celebrating. We both know, according to this perspective... The scriptures alone don't do the trick. They didn't work with Scrooge. 
or they didn't work with the rich man. So fifthly and finally, we get the truth here in verse 31. Notice Abraham's response. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So he's telling us not only are the scriptures sufficient, but there is no better or more effective means than them. If people, according to Abraham, will not hear the Bible, if that's not good enough for them, then they have no hope of being persuaded by any other means. So with that foundation laid and that truth given, let me give us four lessons from this section. Here's the first one. The greatest miracles would have no effect on people's hearts if they will not believe God's word. The greatest miracles will have no effect on people's hearts if they will not believe God's word. We've seen the essence of the rich man's argument, right? The rich man never said the scriptures weren't true. He didn't say, oh, Abraham, that book is full of contradictions and lies. No, he, I think he assumed the Old Testament was true. He would have to. He's talking to a living figure that was in it, right? Abraham himself. So he's not saying the scriptures aren't true. What he's saying is that people need something more outside of the scriptures to convince them that the scriptures are true. You can't expect people to believe, according to the rich man, on the basis of the Bible alone. We need some kind of miracle, a subjective impression, or some other authority outside of the scriptures. Maybe an audible voice, or something like that to convince people that the scriptures really are the word of God. The scriptures themselves are not able to do that, according to the rich man. What are we to think about that argument? Well, J.C. Ryle helps us. I believe this quote will be behind me. You can read along with me. It's quite long, but it's good, so I wanted to present it to you this morning. The rich man thought that if one went to his brothers from the dead, they would repent. He argued that the sight of one who came from another world must surely make them feel their need of forgiveness, though the old familiar words of Moses and the prophets had been heard in vain. The reply of Abraham is solemn and instructive. If they don't hear the Moses and the prophets, they will neither be persuaded if one should rise from the dead. The principle laid down in these words is of deep importance. The scriptures contain all that we need to know in order to be saved. And a messenger from the world beyond the grave could add nothing to them. It's not more evidence which is needed in order to make men repent, but more heart and will to make use of what they already know. If the dead rose from the graves to instruct us, they could tell us nothing more than the Bible already contains. After the first novelty of their testimony was worn away, we would care no more for their words than the words of any other. This wretched waiting for something which we do not have and neglect what we already have is the ruin of thousands of souls. Faith, simple faith in the scriptures, which we already possess, is the first thing needful to salvation. The man who has the Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he becomes a decided Christian is only deceiving himself. Unless he awakens from his delusion, he will die in his sins and be forever in the torments of hell. Now, I hope that you're already thinking with me, and if you haven't, don't feel bad. Okay, don't I say, I didn't think about that, Pastor Mark. That's okay, you think right now. But if you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts and the Old Testament even, you're thinking, 
God used a lot of miracles to authenticate things, right? Think about the prophets of Baal with Elijah. I mean, how do we know that the Lord is God? He acted decisively in supernatural ways. Or think about the ministry of Jesus. Why did he heal people at all? Why did he do miracles if he didn't think they had any practical benefit? Or why did the apostles during their days on earth, given, given by the Holy Spirit, miraculous gifts, able to do these sorts of things for the progress of the gospel as they, taught, as they brought the gospel into new uncharted territory? So we have to wrestle with this. Because it seems like this parable is a contradiction to all that. But is it? Well, no. I don't believe it's a contradiction. And let me explain why. This does not mean that miracles are useless among people who have biblical truth. I mean, it sounds like it. If the prophets haven't converted them, then a miracle won't either. I mean, that seems to be the logic. And we know, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that... The primary agent by which we are born again, that is, regenerated, made Christians, is the Word of God. Peter says, you've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. So, miracles didn't do that. The Word of God did that. But, other agents can have their part. Jesus said, for instance, in Matthew 5, 16, through our good works, the glory of God will shine and people will give glory to our Father in heaven. So good works have a, play, have a role to play. Even Jesus assumed this when he said in John chapter 14, verse 11, believe on account of the works themselves. Wow, Jesus, you said believe on account of the works? Then that means the works fostered the belief. Not so fast. Not so fast. The point is not that God never uses miracles to open the eyes of sinners. The point is that the person who remains blind to the word of God will remain blind to the miracle. Okay, that's the point. The person who sees the true meaning of the miracle already sees the true meaning of the word. In other words, faith is already operating in their hearts and lives before the miracle ever comes to them. God is working in their hearts. And so when they hear the, when they see the miracle, they're, 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 they're drawn. It's just like Simeon and Anna in, in the early chapters of Luke. They were looking for the signs to come of the Messiah. And then when the Messiah came in Jesus and he was brought to Simeon and Anna, oh, I've seen your salvation. It's because they were looking. They were operating by faith. So the key in making sense of all this is understanding that the same change of heart that opens a person to the true meaning of a miracle also opens that person to the true meaning of the word. So it's totally true that a person who rejects the divine meaning of the word will reject the divine meaning of the miracle. And the test of any person who claims to believe because of a miracle will be that their heart embraces the truth of the word of God. If they believe miracles but they don't believe the word, then they're in love with the mere power of the miracle and not the purpose behind the miracle or the person behind the miracle. And they are what Jesus calls adulterous sign seekers. You're an adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. Because you're not... Why does he call them adulterous? Because you're not interested in the sign giver. 
You're interested in the sign. And the sign in that case won't help in a spiritual adulterer. And that's why I framed the issue the way I framed it. The greatest miracles would have no effect on people's hearts if they won't believe God's word. Okay? If they will believe God's word, miracles can have a good effect. But the point is, if resistance to God's word is there, the miracle itself will have nothing beneficial to offer that person. So that's the logic. And I hope you see how those things can be consistent with each other. So point number two, having seen the first one, lesson number two is God's word is sufficient as a witness to lead a person to repentance. God's word is sufficient. It's a sufficient witness to lead a person to repentance. You know, there are many in the world today, and sadly even in the church, who functionally believe that the scriptures aren't enough. We need additional books, and there's a great place for additional books, right? How blessed we are to have them. But we need additional books. We need inner light. We need some sort of personal revelation. We need people who take a trip to heaven and write a book about it. That will convince them. I mean, I went to heaven for five minutes. Paul did too. Okay? He didn't rely on that in his testimony. He mentions it offhand. It's not central to his ministry. He doesn't go into every new place and say, by the way, I've been to the third heaven. Want to hear the story? I got a book about it. It's over here, on the, it's over here in the truck. Sell it to you for five bucks. No, he doesn't do any of that. So, but we argue we need additional books. We need inner light. We need personal revelation. We need people who take a trip to heaven. We need human reason. We need scholarly research. We need scientific discovery. We need cultural consensus. We need concerts. We need drama. We need celebrity endorsements. We need political leverage. We need music. We need movies. Here's the simple truth. We need none of that. God can use that. We need none of it. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by movies. No, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speaking disparagingly. There are great, Christians should make good movies. Praise God when they do. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That's where faith comes from. So if a person gets saved from watching the Jesus film or watching a movie that has a, a redemptive theme, it's because the message in there was enough. It wasn't because the actors cried at the right time. Or that scene was particularly emotional and touched my heart. That might have been true, but that wasn't what brought faith. Okay? So the scriptures, the point of the parable, is that the scriptures authenticate themselves. Now, what, is, what do I mean by that? Because I know that's a... That's a uh, kind of a weird term we don't use. We don't use self-authentication very much. That is, they prove that they're the word of God themselves. They prove by their own authority without any other external authority telling us that they are the word of God. Not only are the scriptures true, but they are sufficient to prove that they are true. The scriptures in and of themselves are able to sufficiently compel belief in their own authority, and in their own trustworthiness. And they do this without any need for something outside of them to say so. There is no higher authority than God's Word. There is no additional authority higher than what God Himself has inspired to produce what God's Word alone can produce. We believe the Scriptures not because the church tells us what to believe or because some outside source verified it, although that's all helpful, 
But we believe the Scriptures because they are in fact the Word of God. The Bible is alive! That's why people believe the Scriptures. Because the book is alive! It authenticates itself. I love Charles Spurgeon on this point. He says, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons who were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a small-grown king of beasts, a full-grown king of beasts, there he is in a cage, and here comes all the soldiers of the army to fight for him, fight for that lion. Well, I would suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach Him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. Right? Let the lion out. The reason so many churches depend on gimmicks and tricks, they haven't let the lion out. Let the lion out. Preach the Bible. We live in a Bible desert. People have it. They don't know it. We have to let the Bible out. That doesn't mean we just share verses from the Bible. But it does mean that our church should be consumed. And by God's grace, we will be with the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures alone are able to give life. Point number three. Lesson number three. Repentance is a moral issue not an intellectual one. Repentance is a moral issue, not an intellectual one. So this, this obviously raises a question based on everything we've said. If, okay, if, if the Scriptures are authenticate themselves, they show themselves to be the Scriptures by their own authority, they don't need anything external to them to help people understand that, why doesn't everybody believe it? Right? I mean, that seems logical. If the scriptures authenticate themselves, then why doesn't everyone who hears the gospel believe the gospel? Well, when people refuse to believe and embrace the Bible, it's not because the scriptures are insufficient to compel belief. And it's not because the scriptures utterly fail to attest to their own authority. And it's not that God mumbles or that he's not clear, he stammers, or he's failed to speak in some consistent, intelligible, clear, or convincing way. No, the problem is with the sinful bias of the human heart. By nature, we all, all of us before we were converted, some of us still unconverted, but nevertheless, by nature, all of us willfully refuse to listen and receive the voice of our Creator speaking to us because we do not like what He has to say to us. Unless the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts, changes our will to desire God's will, we continue to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. Jesus summed it up very clearly in one of His most, well, everything Jesus said is helpful, right? So, this is particularly helpful to the point I am making. John 7, 17. 
If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So did Jesus say repentance is an intellectual problem or a moral problem? He said a moral problem. Their will is not to do God's will. Therefore, they reject my teaching. That's Jesus. That's his assessment of human nature, and he's our Lord, and we agree with him. All right? So the rich man is doing this. Abraham knows it, which is why he responds the way he does in the parable. The rich man is saying, I didn't get a sufficient witness. Maybe my family can. I mean, there's a subtle blaming of God for not giving him a sufficient witness. If you just sent one back from the dead for me, I would have believed. I wouldn't even be in this place right now. But the fact is, his will was never to do God's will. And therefore, if Lazarus would have been brought back from the dead or made miraculously standing on his front porch, he wouldn't have believed it anyway. He said, what doctor helped you? How'd you get that way? Oh, God healed you? Good, I'm glad. And then he just went on, and it wouldn't have affected his heart. The reality is the rich man's will was not to do God's will. Repentance was not an intellectual problem. It was a moral problem. He didn't want to inconvenience his comfortable lifestyle in order to care for Lazarus. That's a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. And that's what landed him in torment, his morality. So sometimes when we're witnessing, we hear things like this. Ah, yeah, I know, I, I've heard all this stuff before, but man, if God would just speak to me, I would know. Or if you could do a miracle here at the workplace, can you float? You know? Can you do a plank in midair? Then I'll believe, you know, that kind of silliness. But it's all a smokescreen, friends. It's all smokescreen. Invariably, when you're sharing the gospel and a person rages, raises an intellectual problem, the deepest problem is not intellectual. That doesn't mean we don't need to seek to satisfy the intellectual problem. It's just if we still satisfy the intellectual problem, it won't fix it. It's not the true problem. One way to deal with this is to lovingly ask a friend or family member who has this belief, like if I would just see someone rise from the dead or something similar, some sort of miracle, then I would believe, is to just say, okay, if I can provide a reasonable answer to the intellectual problem you face with the Bible, would you embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord right now? Would you repent of your sins? Would you follow him? And the common answer will be, eh, there are other issues I have too. And that's true. <laughs> And you could respond, great, make me a list and I'll find all the reasonable answers for you and then you'll become a Christian and come to church with me, right? No. Repentance isn't the result of having all your intellectual questions answered. Repentance is the result of God's Spirit working in your life through the Word of God to convince you of your need for a Savior. Repentance and faith in Christ hinge on the recognition of these two realities. I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. I'm going to get my need met. That's, that's it. 
Man's unbelief, woman's unbelief, a child's unbelief is not merely an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. Scripture says that people refuse to believe because they don't, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.10, love the truth. John 3, verse 19, Jesus said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's a moral problem. Here's what we learn. The fact that someone would rise from the dead cannot compel repentance should be demonstrated and authenticated in the reality that someone already did. Lazarus didn't have to. Jesus did. And millions and millions and millions of people reject him. Well, it's because they weren't there. The people that were there rejected him. His own disciples almost did. (laughs) They saw it and they almost rejected him. So that is not going to compel belief. The only thing that will compel belief is the risen Christ raising us. The risen Christ raising us from spiritual death. That will compel belief. And that alone. In our sin, we'll always find ways to escape the force of truth unless God does a sovereign work of regeneration in a heart. If the word of God is not enough for someone, the problem isn't the word of God. It's us. We don't believe because we don't want to. If we will not be brought to repentance by the scriptures, there's nothing in hell that will ever do it, or heaven or on earth. So that leads me to my fourth and final lesson. Fear of hell will not save us. Only the beauty of Christ can. This is the assumption, right, in the parable. If they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. That's what they need. So the assumption, as we've seen in previous sermons, that according to Jesus, the central message of Moses and the prophets is Jesus himself coming. The Old Testament is promises made. The New Testament is promises kept. It's all about the promise. The Old Testament is all about the promise of Christ coming. And the New Testament is all about the revelation that he has come and all the implications for that. So the assumption is fear of hell can't do it. I mean, that's the assumption of Abraham to the rich man. Look, if I was right now to raise Lazarus from the dead and send them back, not only would they not be compelled to believe, but they wouldn't even get saved because of his warnings to them. Because that's what he says, right? He says, if you'll just raise from the dead and then go back and warn them to not come to this place. It wasn't just the resurrection that he was looking for. It was also the message he was trusting in. He says, go share this message. Warn them. This is a place of torment. It's awful. And that is true. But that won't save. That won't save. Fear of hell saves no one. Fear of hell can compel interest in salvation. God uses it all the time. He used it in many of our lives, no doubt, right? But that wasn't what brought you to Christ. What brought you to Christ was Christ. (laughs) Right? Because as John Piper has said over and over over again, God is the gospel. Now that doesn't mean that God is the the doctrine of God is the content of the gospel. That's not what we mean. We mean that God is the ultimate end 
of salvation. It's to be in relationship with him, to be in fellowship with him, to be in his presence for all eternity. If fear of hell could compel salvation, we wouldn't need God. We'd just send me to paradise. I just don't want to suffer, okay? Well, that's not, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is fearing hell because you miss out, because if you were to go there, you miss out on being with Jesus. I'm going to conclude this sermon and this point with a, an extended illustration from the life of Jonathan Edwards and his friend David Brainerd. Pastor Thad will know this, and I'm sure many of you will know. Pastor Thad's been reading a lot on some Jonathan Edwards' life and biographies recently, so, and he knows Brainerd's story quite well as well. But if you don't, um, David Brainerd was almost Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law. Very, very close. He loved Jonathan's daughter, Jerusha, very much, and she was 17, he was 29 little bit of an age difference there. But they were about to marry, and David Brainerd got tuberculosis. And he was coughing up blood for years in the wilderness while he served as a missionary to the natives in and around that area. And he died in Jonathan Edwards' home with Jerusha loving him and taking care of him. It's a very poignant love story. It's a beautiful example of Christian love and the promise that they would be wonderfully married one day. But Edwards admired David significantly. He stood in awe of David's devotion to Christ. And he devoted, after his death, Jonathan Edwards devoted a considerable amount of time to publishing David's journal. After the Bible and William Carey's inquiry regarding the cause of missions... David Brainerd's journal is probably the most influential missionary book in the world for Christians. And I just want to read from you a few quotes from Brainerd's experience with the Indians that highlighted this reality that the fear of hell can't save. On August 9, 1745, David Brainerd preached to the Native Americans of New Jersey and made this observation in his journal. This is what Brainerd said. There were many tears among them, that is the Native Americans, while I was speaking publicly. Yet some were very much afflicted with a few key words spoken to them in a powerful manner, which caused the persons to cry out in anguish of soul. Although I spoke not a word of terror, but on the contrary set before them the fullness and all sufficiency of Christ and his willingness to save all that come to him, and thereupon pressed them to come to him without delay. He said earlier, three days earlier on August 6th, quote, it was surprising to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender and melting invitations of the gospel when there was not a word of terror spoken to them, end quote. And then again, a few months later, on November 30th, he preached our text, Luke 16, 19 through 31 concerning the rich man and Lazarus. And this is David Brainerd's comment on preaching that passage to those Native Americans on November 30th, 1745. The word made powerful impressions upon many in the assembly, especially while I discoursed of the blessedness in Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. This I could perceive affected them much more than what I spoke of the rich man's misery and torments. And thus it has been unusually with them. They have almost always appeared much more affected with the comfortable than the dreadful truths of God's word. 
And that which has distressed many of them under conviction is that they found they lacked and could not obtain the happiness of the godly. In other words, it was missing heaven that brought the tears, not the anguish of hell. Here's the point I think we learn from that. Hell is insufficient to save. Hell cannot scare anybody into heaven. Because heaven is a place for those who love God, not for those who fear hell. Hell is insufficient to produce tears of genuine repentance. David Brainerd found that the words of the winsome attractiveness of Christ produced more brokenheartedness in the Native Americans than the words of warning did. As John Piper says, the only true sorrow for not having holiness comes from love for God's holiness, not fear of its consequence. To cry over punishment is about to, one is about to receive for wrongdoing is no sign of hating wrongdoing. I've had people in my office crying, crying about divorce, crying about various kinds of pain in their life. That's not spiritual. Unbelieving people cry when their marriages don't work. Unbelieving people cry when their kids go to jail or they go to jail. There's nothing spiritual about tears. What I'm looking for is evidence that the tears are owing to a failure to enjoy God, not merely a failure to be hurt by the consequence of their sin. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, and in all of our thinking about these things, let's not let the fear of hell be our only motive for wanting heaven. Instead, we must come to the living waters of God's truth. There is a treasure great in beauty, far surpassing earth's great wealth. He is Jesus, Prince of glory, source of all grace, peace, and health. He is Jesus, mighty Jesus, holy warrior, sinner's friend. He's the spring of eternal joy. Why do we sing songs like that? Because Jesus is the goal. He's the one we love. He's the one we want to be with. He's the source of living water. He's truth. He's goodness. He's wisdom. He's power. He's justice. He's grace. He's glory. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His steadfast love is better than life. And here's the reality, friends. If you've sat through this sermon series and you've been confronted with your sin and hell and all this, I want you to know Jesus loves you like crazy and he wants to save you for eternity. Whoever desires, let him come and drink the water of life freely. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The one who comes to me, Jesus said, I will never cast out. But perhaps you're saying, as even our brother Cliff led us in prayer earlier. That's my problem. I'm not thirsty enough. My heart is hard. My heart is unfeeling. I'm in bondage to unbelief and doubt. My heart's too sinful. I've tried to be a Christian. Friends, Jesus Christ came to save you from trying to be a Christian. Because <laughs> if you try to be a Christian without Jesus for very long, you'll fail. <laughs> The point is not trying to be a Christian. The point is falling into the arms of Jesus by faith. He doesn't ask you to save yourself. He invites you to come to him. And in him, all your sin and all of your need will be addressed. 
He promises not only to cleanse you, but to give you the Holy Spirit to help you and make you new. John 7, verse 37 through 39, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said these things about the Spirit, whom those who were to believe in him would receive. See, when we come thirsty, we're not left empty. We come thirsty, we get a clean conscience, we get a clean record, we get a perfect righteousness, we also get the person of the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. To be in our lives, to comfort us, counsel us, guide us, empower us, strengthen us. But you say, I've asked. But do you think he's reluctant to give the Holy Spirit to you? Luke 11.3, Jesus said, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You have a love for your kids. If you would give them something legitimate that they ask of you, and Jesus says, by the way, you do that as an evil father, someone who's not perfectly righteous, someone who's a sinner, how much more will a perfectly righteous father be eager to give himself to you when you ask him for himself? So how do we come to him? We come to him as we are. He's there with you. He sees you. He knows you. He hears you. Look to him. Come in your heart and believe. Believe his promise. Believe his word. If you won't, nothing else will do. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the wonderful provision that you have made in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior, to be our Lord, to be our King and Master and forever friend, to be our elder brother, to be the one to whom our praises will through every age ascend. For all of our friends and loved ones who are gathered among us even this morning, who have yet to embrace Christ by faith, would you lead them by your spirit to do that, to embrace him? It won't be because of a miracle from without. It'll be from a miracle from within. It won't be because faith was granted by something external. It would be because faith was given by someone eternal. So, Lord, would you grant faith and repentance? Would you grant a glorious sighting of Christ? Would you push back the blinding effects of the God of this age? And would you shine in the hearts of all, giving them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts to give the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Do new creative work, we pray, in our families, in our friends, in our loved ones, for your glory and their everlasting and eternal good. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.